You're listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. If you want to listen to us in real time, you can stream our show live weekday mornings at 9 a.m. Central. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover 2020, a show about who we are in tumultuous times. One of America's most unpredictable places in electoral politics right now is right here in the Midwest. Voters in 50 counties in Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Illinois abandoned years of helping to elect Democrats to the White House and helped put President Trump there. So what happened? What's still happening in those flipped counties? And that's why Flyover 2020 is all about the flip. Which issues, beliefs, and questions are animating voters in these volatile places in the Midwest? We're going to spend this year finding out with your help. Today, we're talking about how the political parties try to activate different segments of voters and whether that practice of identity politics is leaving us even more fractured. As political scientist Kalila Brown-Dean joins us, I'd like to hear from you on social media. Is the party you vote with most often, including as an independent, too concerned about voters' different identities of race and sexuality, faith and geography? Is that focus dividing us further, or is it acknowledging the important agendas and identities of different groups. So I want to hear from you wherever you are in the political spectrum. Whether you think that your party is too concerned about voters' different identities, and is that focus dividing us further? Or is it acknowledging the important agendas and identities of different groups within the party and within the voting cohorts? Tweet me at CarrieMPR, hashtag Flyover2020. Kalila Brown-Dean is an associate professor of political science at Quinnipiac University and the author of Identity Politics in the United States. She joins us from Quinnipiac, Connecticut. Kalila, welcome. It's really good to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me on, Carrie. The question of how influential identity identity politics was in 2016, I I know you've been digging into this. There's been a lot of debate about it. And I should emphasize that when we talk about identity politics, we're talking about the way it was deployed both for Democrats and Republicans. So I wonder if we've been asking the right question since 2016. I think part of the problem and the questions that we ask is really about why we ask it. So if we believe that identity politics only showed up in 2016, then we negate the long history of division in this country, of deciding whose voices matter, of determining how our policies uh, can differentiate based on those identities, and really why it is that those groups to which we belong, whether we join those groups or we are selected into them, how do they affect our policy preferences? How do they affect the people for whom we vote? And that is that long arc of democratic history in the United States that predates 2016, but certainly gets heightened within that election. Democratic small d when we talk about yes. democratic history, right? So, so is it because the results of 2016 were 
unpredictable. The polls got it wrong. A lot of the pundits got it wrong that we tend to think, well, this is the culmination of what identity politics in the United States brings us. Is that why we tend to ignore the history of it? I think that's part of it. And it's also the the real lesson that I wish we would focus on for 2016 is that it showed us the tremendous diversity that exists within these groups, that it is naive to assume that just because a woman is running for president, that all women will fall into line and support her simply because of a shared group identity. When you look at the tremendous number of white women who voted for Donald Trump, it was to say, yes, my gender is important in my everyday life. But that does not dictate my vote choice in a way that says I should vote based on this as opposed to sort of policy preferences. And 2016 also showed us for all of the focus on the presidential election, there were important races happening within Congress at the local and state level that ushered in new voices that challenged some of our traditional thinking about how identity works in the United States and also what we should expect looking forward in this country. This is interesting because in Minnesota, we had ticket splitters. And I've been curious about how identity politics works in a situation like that, where maybe you're activating one part of your political thinking in one way, and you're activating a different part of your political thinking in another way. I I actually think that happened to some of these women voters that you just mentioned. And this is also something that uh, is often missed, isn't it? It is. And especially for a place like Minnesota, where you see women in particular of all different political backgrounds of saying, yes, on certain issues, I may be very conservative. But when I'm thinking about the experiences of my children in a public education system, I want a candidate who will be attuned to that and make it possible that if my family is working so hard to get our children a quality education, What opportunities will they have to pursue higher education? Can we afford that? And so you have voters saying at the national level, this may be the candidate that I prefer, you know, without regard to party. But when I'm thinking about my everyday lived experience, who is the person that best understands what I'm dealing with? who will represent me and will not forget about the challenges facing the heartland of America within these broader national debates. So for this series of shows, you heard me saying that we are focused on the flipped counties and and we're, we're kind of at ground zero here for flipped counties. Can you see the fingerprint of identity politics in the way the results came out in 2016, specifically in these flipped counties? And what would you say about it? What do you take out of it? We can definitely see the fingerprint or, you know, the series of fingerprints. When you look at something like access to health care, where people said, I had this very high expectation of what this would mean for my ability to afford comprehensive health coverage, and was that delivered? Or in many counties where access to health care was dependent on the availability of medical centers who shut down or who shifted their services, layer on to that questions about immigration more broadly, as well as the growing opioid addiction crisis, 
all of that became something for people to say, wait a minute. I thought in 2012 and 2008, we had solved this issue of race. I thought we were post-racial. So why am I not allowed to express my uh, discomfort or critique a president simply because his racial identity is different from mine? Why can't I be viewed as voting based on my interests and not voting against an identity? So when the rhetoric paints groups against one another to say, if this group gets something, it will take away from you. That's when people start looking at their pocketbooks. They start looking at, is there a noticeable difference in the quality of my life? And if not, perhaps I want to vote in a different way that sends a strong message. Have you just essentially identified maybe what's often misunderstood, but what is often catalyzing about identity politics, which is if that group gets that, I don't get this zero sum gain. Is that that often at work in identity politics and it's not very well understood? That is the core of identity politics. It is about how we see ourselves, however we define that, how we see others, however we define that. And what are the mechanisms that I have to reinforce those distinctions? So, Carrie, people often think of identity politics as something that other people do. That's for other groups. And usually it means other groups that are making some claim for representation or visibility that I interpret as erasing my own. And that means if we're talking in earlier parts of American history where you saw large groups of people coming from Ireland and Italy and bringing with them their Catholic faith. And people saying, wait a minute, if those people are allowed to live in our neighborhoods, in our community, how do we know they will be loyal to the United States and not loyal to the Vatican? So let's create new policies that make it more difficult for Catholic children to be enrolled in public school. So we'll adopt a King James version of the Bible. Because then it is our way of saying, these are the values of our community. And if we don't think you fit with those values, what structures can we put in place to legally minimize how you can operate? Kalila Brown-Dean is with us this morning for Flyover 2020. This is a show about who we are in tumultuous times. And we are focused this year On the flipped counties, voters in 50 counties in Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan and Illinois left years of helping to elect Democrats to the White House and helped put President Trump there. And we, along with many other political scientists and political observers, are still trying to figure out what happened, what is still happening in these flipped counties And that's why Flyover 2020 is really all about the flip. And Kalila Brown-Dean is helping us understand how uh, identity politics intersects in this. She's an associate professor of political science at Quinnipiac University, and her new book is called Identity Politics in the United States. Kalila, one of the things that you do is break out different themes of identity politics, and I think it would be helpful if, especially given what you just said about everybody thinks the others are are using identity politics, how we might see ourselves and our thinking and our allegiance to a, a certain political group in this. Let's let's break down the three different themes of identity politics and then use some examples maybe to, to put some context on it. Your first one is individual identity. What should we understand about it? 
So individual identity or self-identity is really how we see ourselves. So if you ask me personally, you know, Kalila, how would you identify yourself? Well, I may say a Southerner, or I may say a Virginian or professor. That's how I see myself. And politically, what that means can change because we are all members of multiple groups at once. And the second part of that is how that individual identity, that self-identity, fits more broadly into our social identity. You say with group identity, our proximity to an affinity for those with whom we share certain characteristics and experiences. So as I think about the, I think about the way I hear the parties are reaching out to certain groups of Americans, like Democrats are trying to reach out to young college-educated women of color. Republicans are, and we've heard a lot of a lot of angst about this. Like Democrats, are they losing? the white, non-college-educated, rural American. So is that how we would we should be thinking of group identity? And when we hear, you know, the different outreach from the, from the parties, it should trigger more understanding about what group identity politics is? Right. And so I want to be very clear that group identity is not just about race and not just about ethnicity. You know, it could be of saying, I want to tap into a base of voters who are concerned about their gun rights and are concerned that a particular candidate or a particular party, if elected, will undermine the hunting culture within a particular county. So that's how I want to target that group, to let them know why a policy or a candidate threatens and challenges their standing, their rights, their right to self-determination. And so that's how that individual and that group identity play in. Politicians and parties only have so many resources. They only have so many bites at the apple. So what they tend to do is lump together very diverse groups of people and then put a particular framework on them to create a group identity or to heighten a group identity where before probably we didn't really think of ourselves as being connected to that group. Now we perceive a shared sense of faith. I I assume that campaigns and candidates have always, I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover 2020, a show about the Midwest and who we are in tumultuous times. Quinnipiac University's Kalila Brown-Dean, and I've been talking about identity politics and how it shapes the way campaigns are built and the way voters respond. You heard her argue that Americans' religious identity is often misunderstood by campaigns and candidates. I thought Pastor John Lee would have something interesting to say about that. Pastor Lee leads the Bethel Christian Reformed Church in a small town in Iowa, in Sioux Center, Iowa. And he joins us this morning to talk about it. Pastor Lee, welcome. Good to have you on the show. Thanks, Jerry. It's good to be here. I'm interested in how you hear the candidates talk about faith, not just their own, but the role that faith plays in Americans' lives, because for many of us, faith influences the way we might see an issue or the candidate that we're going to support. So how do you see the way the candidates talk about that? 
That's a, a great question, and I guess I would see it in two different ways. Um, one is, you know, we're in the primary season in Iowa with a lot of Democratic candidates coming through the area, and it's been refreshing to hear faith articulated by a number of those candidates um, in ways that often in the Democratic primary um, I haven't heard. So I guess in that sense, I'm encouraged. Um, on the other side, uh, coming from a more right-wing um, perspective of faith, typically, you're also a little cynical when you hear faith in public discourse because you wonder if it's a calculus more than a conviction. Wow. Um, so. a-, a calculus because, oh, it's the election year and there are voters that I want to support me, and so now I'm going to need to talk about this. Is that what you mean or what? Yeah, that's what I mean. Um, that there's always a, a cynical side um, in political discourse where you know, you're always wondering if, if someone's sharing what they think you want to hear, or is it actually a conviction that um, transcends the voting demographic they're talking to, right? So, I'm interested in how you talk about this with your congregation. And I don't mean, uh, hey, I'm supporting such and such candidate. I hope you will, too. If I, I, I presume you don't say things like that from the pulpit. Is that right? No, I, I don't, um, both for wisdom and for legality. Uh, but, but there, you know, apart from that, there is a, a great intersection between three terms that are non-identical, um, right? The prophetic voice of the Church, the political implications of that voice, and then the partisan dimensions. And I think it's important as a pastor to wrestle and do that in community with where does the prophetic become political and where does the political become partisan? And I would say the first two of those three terms are appropriate. The third one is not, um, but it's often in the eye of the beholder where a statement falls in that spectrum. And so, yeah, as a, as a pastor, you know, I'm seeking to form disciples of Jesus Christ that go out into the world to live and to be the image bearers of Christ. And so that has dimensions of every dimension of life falls under that. And so there's no way that I can preach Scripture to the embodied community of Christ and not be political. Um, but there's a way that that should never be partisan. I'd assume from the specific way that you think about this, you have, for lack of a better word, you've kind of educated your congregation to join in those kinds of discussions and, and that kind of thinking. How have you done that? Because the minute you say there's going to be a political element to this, uh, you're you're probably got some congregation members who recoil from the idea of that. So, so how have you brought the congregation into these discussions and the knowledge of this? Well, a, a number of ways. Um, one, there is great anxiety about politics and, and the polarized time in which we live. Right. So you just have to acknowledge there's a pastoral dimension behind each of those um, theological questions, and so to recognize there's fear in the congregation. Um, those who are on the progressive end are, of course, very afraid of the current administration, especially members who are DACA. Um, mm-hmm. But those who are conservative are greatly afraid of where they see the direction of the country going. And so you have to speak to the fear and through the fear uh, to the human heart and not necessarily to the minds or the ideas. So that's one um, dimension of it. I, I think also as, as I engage these issues, it helps to try to uh, put yourself in the, the, the understanding of the congregation and to not talk down to, but to stand with. And mm-hmm. to try to have the gospel um, have a cutting edge across all the political spectrum. You know, if people feel like you're um, only, the gospel only has something uh, that critiques one part of the spectrum, they, they tend to be cynical. But when they recognize no political party embodies the kingdom of God, 
um, then I think there, there's an ability to see the daylight between where Scripture calls us as a people and where any particular candidate or party embodies that imperfectly. How large is your congregation, Pastor? About 700 people um, during the school year, bigger because we have a university in town. Okay. Yeah. So, of course, with the university there and with that number in your congregation, you have people with who come to church and come to your organization with uh, all kinds of political beliefs, right, and life experiences that inform those beliefs. How aware are you of that, and how does that influence the way you'll you'll talk about some of these issues that you think are important to to debate? Well, a couple of things. Um, one, we're not as diverse as you may expect. Um, you know, with social influence theory and interaction bias, right? Americans tend to ghetto themselves in places of like-minded thinking, um, and so uh-huh. Sioux County is. You know, if you look at voting trends, tends to be one of the reddest counties in the state of Iowa, and maybe even in the country, be certainly on the top end. So in that sense, um, there is a diversity of thought, but it's, it is more, um, maybe not as diverse as some congregations. So that, that's just kind of by way of parenthesis. Um, okay. but, but I would say, as I've engaged people, I think the, the real fault line in America today, you're talking about identity, is that we have lacked a, a lost a shared identity, um, and I think our identities tend to be extrinsic, not intrinsic. They tend to be rather shallow. And the, the, what I see in a congregation with that is when your identity is connected to your ideology, then to have debate is perceived as a, a personal deconstruction, right? If you're questioning my ideas, you're attacking my person. That's why we so often go quickly to ad hominem. Um, and, and so one of the things that as a pastor I get to do is stand off, and my church has a lot of young families, a lot of births, I stand at the baptismal font, and that's really a, a space of formative identity, right? Um, I, mm-hmm. I always think of, in the age of intersectionality, um, race, class, gender, you know, of Galatians chapter 3, 26 to 28, which says, in Christ you all are children of God, right? That's the foundational identity. And the reason is for you all baptized into Christ, and therefore there is neither Jew nor Gentile, that's race, neither slave nor free, that's class, nor is there male mm-hmm. and female, that's gender, for you all one in Christ Jesus. And so um, really the job, I think, of the Church in a fractured time is to help people reclaim that, at least within the faith community, that shared identity that's deep and intrinsic and not um, maybe is, is changed to the politics of the time. Well, you've really just named what we're trying to do here with Flyover, which is show a different path than, well, if that's your ideology, then that's all I need to know about your identity. That is that is kind of the path that I think America is on. It's really hard to break that, isn't it? It sounds like you think about that all the time. It is, though, you know, as a pastor, I mean, I had a phone call today with someone in behavioral health who had electroshock therapy and will again today. Um, and be dealing with a family who's um, two nonverbal autistic kids, and they just had to put down their um, comfort dog. And you know, there oh. are things about, oh my gosh. You, know, you know, when you're dealing with humanity at its raw level, um, that I think gives you a grounding uh, that what you see on the news, really even important things like geopolitical issues in Iran, um, 
really have our put in context, right? And I think the more we can mm-hmm. see one another as humans, um, regardless of your faith commitment, and recognize in that the deep complexity and beauty that being a human is, um, I think we can treat each other with more respect and maybe gen- engender a little bit more humility about how we interact with one another. And I think pastoral work kind of puts you in that, that mode all the time. You know, I'm curious as to wh- how long you have been how long it's been since you were ordained, because it really sounds like experience has been powerful for you in knowing how to navigate the the times we're in. Yeah. So my, my wife and I got married 11 years ago this month. And then after a week, honeymoon, we moved to uh, Sioux County, Iowa. So I've been here for well, 11 years um, of a pastoral ministry. This is my first parish from seminary. Do you feel like you are pastoring in some of the most challenging times you 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 know could imagine? Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, I, I guess I was a history major as an undergrad, and I think often we tend to be a little myopic. You know, there were great struggles um, in the past, and, you know, including civil war, right? And so, in that sense, I don't want to overstate the case, but um, I was just with uh, some extended family um, last weekend. Fox News was on, you know, most of the time. And um, you, you just recognize that you, as a pastor, speak, you know, I do two services, two sermons a Sunday, um, but that's just a, a, a voice in the wind of a world that has a lot of competing ideas and ideals. And um, I think that's maybe a thing that hasn't been in the history of humanity, that, that sort of saturation um, and polarization of that saturation that I, I'm, I'm speaking into in a given week. Pastor John Lee is the pastor at Bethel Christian Reformed Church in Sioux Center, Iowa, and he was talking to us this morning about how Americans' religious identity is often misunderstood by campaigns and candidates. Pastor Lee, thank you very much. Good to have you on the show. Thank you, Carrie. I appreciate the time. You just heard a recording of a live radio show from NPR News. You can add your voice to the discussion by calling in at 800-242-2828 or tweeting us at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I, NPR. To hear more conversations like this, subscribe to our podcast. And thanks.